the Podfix Network. Hello and welcome to episode 217 of the Filmmakers Podcast. I am Giles Alderson. I'm a writer, director and a producer who has made the feature films The Dare, Arthur and Merlin, Knights of Camelot, The Stranger in Our Bed and World of Darkness and have also produced the features A Serial Killer's Guide to Life, Followers and Repeat. And this is a podcast where we talk filmmaking from indie film to studio films and everything in between. How to get them made, how to make them and how to try not to F it up in our very, very humble opinion. Today, I'm delighted because we are talking making TV. Yeah, that's right. And we have a very, very special guest on who has made TV shows, including The Sins, Fields of Gold, Labyrinth, Taboo, The State, Riviera, Honor and Temple. She is the extraordinary Liza Marshall. She's also produced the feature films Boy A, The Mark of Cain, Endgame, uh, Life in a Day, Welcome to the Punch, Get Santa, Springfield and I, and Before I Go to Sleep, starring Nicole Kidman, Colin Firth, and Mark Strong, who, incidentally, is married to Liza Marshall. You can listen to our fantastic Mark Strong episode. It is episode 19, where he talks all about his career and working with some amazing directors. So on today's episode with Liza, we talk about her career, how she worked at the BBC. She was a producer there for seven years, what that was like. We also talk about how she finds projects, how she finds writers, what the writer's room is like, the difficulties in there, script editing, how to do it. She also talks about the difference between film and TV, how to pitch to producers, why it is about teamwork, and how to get the option. She also talks about fighting sexism, and she gives some amazing advice, including so much of what you do won't be made. We also talk about the fantastic TV series Temple that does star Mark Strong and that is out on Sky TV right now. It is an absolute delight and it's brilliant. If you haven't seen it, do go see it. They've also just shot the third series, which should be out on your TV teleboxes very soon. So that's all coming up with the fantastic Liza Marshall. So you, you filmmaker new TV maker? Are you doing everything you're supposed to be doing? You're filmmakers, right? But what makes you different? Because it's hard. So you've got to be a bit different, right? All those closed doors. But you know what? Let's let's bust the door open. Let's surprise everybody. You close the door? I ain't accepting that. You know what? This pandemic, it's been, um, it's been crippling for many of us. Something good is coming out of this. Do not give up on yourself, ever. Because the experiences I've had on making movies and TV so far has made me who I am. I love who I am. But falling short, disappointing yourself is the worst thing you can do. Not reaching your potential. And I feel everybody has the ability. You know, often people say your positivity, you're very positive about people's films. Yeah, because I know how hard it is to make them. So of course, if someone's gone out there and done it and been through the trenches, I appreciate that so much. And I feel everybody has the ability whether you want to or not. 
and you can't stop a storm. Now that happens in life, this virus, the, the hurt, the pain it has caused. But I've come to think it's all possible. I see lots of lost people, filmmakers, struggling, having a hard time, getting frustrated or disappointed. But don't underestimate the diamond that is under all that. Because we see the outer. What about the inside? So don't forget that when you see someone. Collaborate with people and find the best people you can work with. And I hope this podcast gives you the inspiration you need to go out there and make it happen for you. Be that in filmmaking or something else. But believe in yourself and go for it. And then come on the podcast and tell us about it. And inspire others to do the same. Because that's what it's about. That's why we do this. So I've got some shout outs for you, for those wonderful people who uh, love us and give some wonderful feedback on Twitter or on the socials. On our Twitter is at FilmmakersPod, by the way. If you want to shout out, give us some love. Uh, shout outs to Jamie Dickinson, Tony Cook, Elliot Maguire, AAA Boylan, Alex DeCuffa, Renzo Vasquez, Martin Sweeney, Dom Gilday and Swati Chung. Thank you very much. Do remember Clubhouse with us. The Filmmakers Podcast presents is every Thursday. If you have an iPhone, come and join us. 7pm UK time, GMTV. GMTV? GMT every Thursday. Come and join us for that and you can come and ask questions. Also our Patreon. Come and join us. Be part of this team. And there's some amazing perks on there. All these links are on the website, are on underneath this. They're in the show notes. Go find it. Go seek it out. Right, let's get to our episode with the delightful Liza Marshall. Joining us as co-host is the fantastic Dom Lemoire, uh, director, producer, writer, who made the feature film Winter Ridge. So here it is, the Filmmakers Podcast episode with Liza Marshall. Enjoy. Liza, hello, hello. Hello, hello. Hi, how are you? Very good, thank you. Very good. Lovely to see you. And you. Liza, it's, honestly, it's a real pleasure to have you on. How are you doing today? Because I know you're in the middle of a load of stuff at the moment. Obviously, you've got Post, Temple's coming out. You've got all these other projects at the moment going. I imagine you're in the middle of so much right now. So thank you for your time, basically. But how are you? You okay? You all right? <laughs> Surviving? I'm, I'm fine. I'm not bad. Yeah, we've been, we've been doing a writer's room for season three, potential season three of Temple. So I've been all this week from 9 till 12.30 on Zoom with about eight people so it's very tiring it is zoom for after a while can just your brain can go oh i I can't i can't i just need to look away and with zoom not when you're in meetings when you sat around you can look around you can look out the window on zoom you you feel like you have to just be staring (laughs) you have to be staring that camera lens yeah (laughs) it's hard work isn't it how have you Mm. find doing a writer's room on zoom how is that been different from doing a normal writer's room I think we've actually made really good progress in this first week, more than I expected. But I think norm- normally when we've done it before, we're, we're in the room from 9.30 to 5.30, 6 o'clock, you know, with an hour for lunch. And there's opportunity to get to know people and riff off each other in a way that there isn't on Zoom because it's so intense that people end up not, not doing personal stories quite as much and not chatting as much. So, so we've, done, we've, we've got really far. I mean, it is not nearly as good as all being in the room together. Yeah, I suppose there is a bit of a, a challenge as well in terms of like the, the Zoom delays. I mean, you know, doing it with like doing a Zoom with like one or two people is sort of challenge enough with, with the pauses and, and those kind of things. 
But I imagine sort of managing, you know, seven or eight people <laughs> trying trying to all jump in on on the, you know, yeah. a gap in the conversation is is slightly more more challenging than than in real life. Yeah, really. And then you have awkward pauses because everyone, we're all very polite in English. So there's either everyone talking over each other or someone pitches an idea, weird, silent pause. And everyone's commented on how intimidating it is to look at everyone's slightly blank faces mm. after they've pitched a story idea. Yes. So And also, obviously, then people's Internet goes in and out. So some days somebody has a really good one. Then the next day people keep dropping off. So it is it's not perfect. But it's, you know, it's still fun and it's better than nothing. No, absolutely. Similar to doing the podcast, obviously, we normally do it face to face. And it's so much easier to read someone's intonations, how they're feeling. We can bounce off each other so much more. But the same thing here, you kind of go, OK, I'll let you speak now. No, you go. And it does slightly take away that edge of, you know, fun that you can get from doing something like this, which so so you, so you're clear as well. This is obviously for filmmakers and for people out there, screenwriters, uh, TV execs, anyone who's trying to make films. So we all what we do this for is to help other filmmakers out there uh, to carry on doing it and doing exactly what, you know, becoming uh, Eliza Marshall, which, uh, you know, is is a, an amazing achievement. What you've done, honestly, your career is is absolutely fabulous. You know, and I really want to talk about Temple and uh, and talk about. Um, honor and, and all the projects that you've got coming up but it'd be really interesting because to talk to our viewers about how you actually started because as far as I can tell you were a script supervisor on your sort of first few jobs but script how did, editor script not editor okay yeah. Yeah. how did you even get there how did you become a script editor what was, what was well, I think when, when I when I left university I knew that I wanted to work in film I was more obsessed with film at that point than television I suppose and I had no idea how to start or what to do. I ended up getting a job as a secretary to um, a casting director or an assistant to a casting director on Peak Practice. Remember yes. that, that show yeah. about doctors in the Peak District? Yeah, yeah. And on that show, I met the two, there were two script editors, uh, one of whom was Damien Timmer, actually, who's now an incredibly successful television producer. And I had no idea that was a job. And I remember being offered a, a different job as somebody's PA, which was at the time was going to offer me 18 grand. It seemed like this gigantic amount of money. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah, and and I remember turning it down because I thought, actually, no, I don't want to be somebody's assistant. I want to go into working with writers. So I then went on the script editor's advice, went to become a script reader. So I did that freelance for a couple of years, literally no money and you get paid per script. You have to write a report on the script, do a synopsis and comments. And I used to go to Channel 4, obviously in the days before email, and I would pick up literally 10 scripts in my hand and go home and read them. And I would always want them to be bad. Because if they were bad, you could write a really quick report, a quick synopsis. <laughs> Don't touch this script. It's terrible. Yeah. But obviously, if it was good, it was much more challenging. And then I would deliver my reports. And so I worked freelance for various broadcasters and and and, and companies to get going. And, and then I got a, a job as a script editor um on the on back of that did you find you learnt an incredible amount just by reading different scripts and you, you know because you start to get an idea of what's a good script and, and what's a bad script and kind of learning all those patterns don't you yeah I mean that's reading scripts is is a brilliant way to work out what's what's good and bad I mean I think maybe doing it about two years you it was just slightly too long because if you're just reading a lot of very bad scripts, because you're never <laughs> given the good ones as a script. I mean, people don't use readers so much now, but you're never given the good ones. You're given all the unsolicited ones and all the bad ones. So so I suppose that was that was quite useful. Yes. Yes. And then and from that, because that's obviously a really good way in. But how did you actually go almost from there to 
getting more jobs and saying at that point did you want to produce did you know you wanted did you want to be a screenwriter did what would did you know at that no, point? No, I always, I always to wanted to produce, I suppose. Mm. I never wanted to be a writer. I think script editors fall into two categories. They either are, you know, want to be full-time writers or they want to be producers. I mean, some just want to be script editors, obviously. But I, yeah, I worked as a reader and I got some research jobs. I remember working for a company uh, who had an idea about a female surgeon and going and, and following this female surgeon around and actually watching a surgery and writing up notes and doing stuff like that. And then I, I think my, my first job was, working on a, on a show called London Bridge, mm. which was, uh, do you remember, it started yeah, off with once a week, so 6.30. It, it was a yeah, fire it, one, it was, right? It wasn't, no, was, no, not that's, no, London London's Bridge. London's Burning. Actually, that's London's Burning. Ah, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. This was a half hour show set around a restaurant owned by somebody called Nick, and then various, it started off as a once a week show, and then it got turned into a sort of twice a week soap type thing. And I worked on that for a year over in Three Mills. And that was just, a completely brilliant training ground because I probably script I storyline and script edited about I think about 75 episodes wow just a crazy amount of episodes and we had all of these constricts because it was a really low budget it was about 45 grand for half an hour it was literal peanuts and we were yeah. only allowed to go outside once per episode and you could only have 15 <laughs> extras and things like that and so yeah, yeah. we had to we had to just come up with these insane storylines but it was really creative and liberating because unlike something like EastEnders which was so regimented you know you couldn't just make stuff up it, we uh, me and, and, and a, a very close friend of mine who was called Alexi de Kaiser had this massive whiteboard in his office and we would just make up crazy shit and most of it got into the show <laughs> I love that is, had, that must, has it ever been as liberating as that? Was it, you know, was, you felt like you had free reign almost to go, let's throw things literally at the yeah, wall. Yeah, in some ways that was the most fun I've ever had at work because I was really young, I was in my early 20s and relatively had all this responsibility. And we were, sh we were our offices were right above where we were shooting. So it was brilliant training because I think too often script editors can be divorced from production. So you don't really understand what's going into a script and the implications of putting you know a fire engine and how much that might cost or, or whatever it might be and it was just really fun and we it just shot and shot and we used to have these massive parties at the end of every block and everyone was pretty young I tell you who was like Chris Dickens you know editor who ended up who's won Oscars and things he yes was one of the editors and really interesting people worked on it because everyone was very young and it was a really great training ground I mean, I'm not sure the show is great. I think if you went back and watched it. <laughs> but like you say, what a wonderful training ground. Mm. So important. Adom? I was just going to say, so, I mean, you know, looking at story structure and, and how you sort of approach uh, those those kind of projects, is it something that you just always felt like you had a, a strong grasp of story structure or did you kind of read books on, on that kind of thing and script writing or was it kind of learning all on the job? I did do the Robert McKee course, but when I was at the BBC, they, they, they paid for you to go on it. And I think I, I think by that point, I, I mean, I think it, that's great. But I think it was it, I think the London Bridge experience was was really key because we were working with such junior writers and more often than not, they couldn't get there on the script. So we were doing an awful lot of helping them. And because there was such a fast turnover, I think that was that was very useful in, in storytelling experience. And I just think I think it's something that you learn from just working on scripts. And I've been doing it now about 25 years. So I feel like in terms of story, I'm quite good at helping people construct it i think you can be taught to structure but you can't be taught to write i think mm -hmm. it, if that makes sense yeah totally what do you think makes a good script editor is there's people listening here who go oh you know i i kind of fancy that what what kind of things should they be looking to do um i think it's a brilliant job i think you have to learn to subsume your own 
ego, which is maybe why more script editors are, are female and gay men. I don't know. But generally, they, they because they think you, you it's, a, it's a real art form that you have to help people do their best work. So you have to try and suggest an idea and a writer might say no, but half an hour later might be, hey, I've got a brilliant idea. And it's and they'll tell you the idea that you told them half an hour ago, but you can't say, hey, hang on, that was mine. That's a great idea, like, yeah. You have to be like, oh my, oh my God, that's such a great idea. <laughs> so you have to be able to do, you have to be really nurturing and really supportive. And I think that's, and, and not let your own ego get in the way because it's not your, it's not your script. You're trying to help somebody make mm. their script better. So, I mean, that's a real gender stereotype to say that women and gay men are better at it. But traditionally in the industry, that is 100% who, who's been script editing a lot. Mm. That's um, really, really interesting. And, and, and that's, it does, like you say, sometimes it does need that almost pandering to the writers or the producers or the directors, you know, about how to help that. And actually it does take a certain you know, type of person to be able to do that. It's not easy. Yeah, and I think you have to be really diplomatic and you have to be really positive because where I always come from is people do their best work in in a, in a positive way you know so i'm not ever a confrontational person or i would never shout at anyone or tell them their work was bad it's always about finding the positive because it's it's so difficult to write a script and it's so difficult to do in a performance to lay yourself on the line like that and it, you're very vulnerable and i think you just have to be really really gentle with people and make them feel like when they have to go back and do the rewrites that they're not, you know, people get writer's block if they think, oh my God, it's shit, I can't do it. But if they think, well, this, all these elements are great in my script, I'm gonna, I really like this note. I can see that this note might make it better. Therefore, I'm excited to try it. Mm. Yeah, which is so important. And I, I really like that because we can get writer's block and it can be daunting and frightening. Um, how did you progress from there? I say progress, it was things like it was great fun. Um, how did you go from there to going, well, look, I want to produce. So how, what was your way? Did you start to produce a couple of those shows? Did you try and move into that angle with uh, London Bridge or was it, no, I need to move forward? Because I know you were at the BBC for quite a while as yeah, well. I did, I, did, um, I did London Bridge and I was working for uh, Jane Tranter and Pippa Harris because they were on London Bridge and then they left ITV Carlton as was to go to the BBC. So I took Pippa's old job at Carlton. And then I went then script edited at Kavanagh QC and a show David called Bad, Bad as well, Blood. Right. Well, actually, that was then I moved to the, I, I did was at Carlton for a, for a bit at the show Frenchman's Creek, all these various TV shows. And then actually Pippa and Jane offered me a job at the BBC. And that's when I moved to the BBC I see. As, a, as a script editor. And I was there and I did do David Copperfield, which was quite a, as a script editor, which was a very intense experience because we were going to do the show with John Sullivan, you know, obviously who wrote only Fools and Horses. And, horses. and yeah. it had been greenlit as I think two 90 minutes Christmas special. And I remember going to his house and he was, he had writer's block. He just, he just couldn't find his way through it. Cause I think he'd never done a book adaptation like that. And it didn't, you know, it didn't work out. So in the end he, he ended up not wanting to write it. So Adrian Hodges came on board and I think we had two months or three months, a crazy short time to come up with the script. So he came into my office at the BBC and I read that, I read the book probably three times marking the all, you know, all the bits that we would, and I would like read out bits of dialogue. He would type it in and we, we just wrote it together in this really intense period. And then, and then I went on, Simon Curtis was directing it and he was very kind and supportive and let me come on set a lot. So I was probably on set for about half of the time we were shooting. And at that point, I just really wanted to produce. 
and Jane Tranter at the BBC, there was a, a project written by Billy Ivory called The Sins and a different producer had been on it and had fallen out with Billy. And she offered me the job of producing it. I think by that point I had been quite vocal in wanting to do more than be a script editor. I basically sort of said, I think I'm, I want to leave unless you give me a better job in a, in a, in a nice way. Cause I was just, I didn't just want to be a script editor. I wanted to do all the other good bits as well. And so she took this enormous risk on me and let me produce a seven part show. And I was only 26, 27. And what was that experience? You know, so put put yourself back into those shoes. You've just been given this this big producing job. You haven't, you know, physically done it before. What was the sort of process of like learning? You know, what you knew, what you didn't know. Uh, what you know, how did you sort of try to prepare for that? If you can, yeah, I think you. Yeah, I mean, I you couldn't really prepare for it, I suppose. And I would say I knew absolutely nothing, and no one would ever give me that chance. There, it was because it was the BBC, and there was a structure, and there also was a tradition of script editors moving into producing roles whereas now with, with if you're in an indie independent company I don't it would be hard to give someone a break on a show that that of that size but but she she did and it was it was brilliant I remember the first day I went on set and we had all the trucks were there and I literally couldn't believe that I was in charge of it all and I went into the mobile production office and I looked incredibly young and one of the drivers said to me um all right love can you make me a cup of tea <laughs> Wow. And I went, I, I think I think you'll find I'm the producer. <laughs> you made me a cup of tea. <laughs> exactly. And I, I look like this sort of assistant costume girl. And I think uh, a lot because it was very male dominated then, you know, it's 20 odd years ago. And people didn't really know what to make of me because so much so many of the crew were, were men and they would normally be making. I mean, now you can't even imagine it, but people all the time would make comments sort of, you know, all right, love and, you know, that kind of thing. And yeah, anyway, it was it was a, it was a brilliant experience, and I didn't really know anything, but I learnt pretty fast. Yeah, well, da- David Yates was one of the directors of that. He's obviously gone on to do Harry Potter. He was, and... he was, because he. Um, I, I was always had this snobbery about film. Like I always wanted to make films. I mean, and it's so interesting the way the whole industry is reversed. But I, uh, Simon Curtis, was attached to direct the first block and I really wanted someone who hadn't done a lot of television and David Yates had made this film called The Titchborn Claimant which I don't think anyone really saw particularly but he hadn't worked for a while but I loved that film and so he came in and he responded brilliantly to Billy's scripts which are this slightly heightened tone which he completely got and he came on board and, and directed the middle three and that really was the springboard for him you know he then got various television jobs after that state of play and then went on obviously to huge success um, but he 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 did he did a brilliant job. Mm. On you episodes. must have yeah totally. I mean you you must have in your career sort of the people who keep going. You know the people who keep, you must have these amazing connections now in terms of you've 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 worked your way up. You know uh, not from the bottom, but you worked you've worked your way. You've found your way. You've sort of said no, I want to produce, and you kept going in this wonderful world. And you must have come across so many filmmakers now who are all, you know, like Pippa Harris you mentioned there, you know, David Yates, they're all at the top of their sort of games. And that must be a lovely sort of place to know you can pick up the phone to these people who you knew when, you know, they were making a cup of tea for you. You know, whatever it was must be really nice, I think. Yeah, I think, I mean, it's such a small industry that it's all the same people that you end up bumping into. Um, yeah, and, and some people were really supportive. I mean, particularly Jane Tranter, she was like a, a mentor. She gave me such a big break when I was really young and was was quite tough on me, but gave me such brilliant advice. I remember her saying to me, just remember that you know, it's not it's not important that everyone likes you, which I found really hard to because you, you've got to be in charge. 
in a sense. And I, I remember one time I, I came on set, it was at the end of the first week and I just watched The Rushes and, you know, she had given me a couple of notes and things that I had to deal with. And I remember walking onto the set and I obviously looked worried. And one of the actresses came up to me and said, have you seen the, are you, are you not pleased with my performance? And I was like, it was literally the furthest thing from what I was thinking. But I, I, I was showing what I was thinking on my face which I think was a, it's quite a good tip as a producer because you've got to, no matter even if the wheels are falling off, you've got to be in the centre of it, making sure that everyone feels confident and secure, particularly the actors, because they've got the hardest job of coming on set and performing. And if they sense for a moment that things are rocky behind the scenes, it could really destabilise them and they won't give their best performance. Um, and I remember Jane giving me lots of brilliant tips about what I should do. But I'd, I'd never even been to a, a grade, for example, or a dub. So the first time I actually... Well, I, I didn't even really know what it was. And then just being plunged in the deep end. And we had various very dramatic things happen. Like Pete Postlethwaite, who was completely amazing after five episodes, said that he was exhausted and he didn't want to shoot the rest of the series. So we had a very stressful uh, 48 hours while we had to convince him to come back. And things like that that were just thrown at me, which I found, I just loved it, actually. I found, I found it all very exhilarating. I think some people are really good at dealing with pressure and dealing with, you know, running a ship like that because it is difficult. And like you say, you've you learned, you know, don't show stuff on your face, don't at certain times, you know, then you've got to be strong at other times. I think it's also it, it's how you it's how we, you react when things go wrong. Like I, I think um, and I'm not sure if you'll agree with this, Lisa, but. I find there's there's producers that kind of see problems as you know this is something that's gone wrong this is not what we planned shit and then you see producers that think okay well there's always going to be things that are constantly adapting it's just another problem to solve and that's kind of their mindset and I and I feel like those are the ones that that tend to cope with the stress better maybe hundred percent and all of producing is problem solving. I think, I mean, when I, when I was, I mean, I now more exec produce rather than on set produce, but certainly when I was an on set producer, I actually almost wanted things to go wrong because it gave me something to do. <laughs> because when it's going really, really well, you don't really have anything to do. And I think you have to, you just, you have to love the chaos because otherwise you would explode with the stress. So, you know, you, you, yeah, it, it's, it's a very stressful job, but, but I think, I, I, I think I find that really fun. Mm. Have you? You mentioned there about what you you learned early on. Is there things now that you go? I mean, I imagine you're still learning. I don't think we ever stop learning, right? But was there anything now looking back when you first started to how you are now? You went, oh, I kind of wish I knew that. That that might help some upcoming, you know, producers now. I don't know. I guess it's. I, I think listening to your instinct is really important, and I think that's something that I've become more used to listening to. I suppose, like if you have a sense about somebody. That, that it's not right, they're not right for the team, that feeling is only going to get worse. It never gets better, in my experience now, having, having done it quite a few times. And it's rare that you have to fire someone off a show, but or if, or if something you're just not sure about the, the rushes or the way something is looking, or so, you've just got to listen to that because you're probably right. I, I think, that, I think that's, a, that's an amazing sort of philosophy, whether you're a producer or, or a director, you know, or in casting, um, that... You know, I think we were talking about this last week, but but the longer you leave something that you don't sort of feel right about in in terms of a you know decision, whether it's a you know cast member or maybe it, maybe it's a scene that you think, oh, I've actually <laughs> something here hasn't gone as we planned. This is a bit. This isn't like you know how I planned it to go. It's not. It's not how I visualized it. You know, if, if you just leave it and you don't sort of have the, the difficult discussion, 
you're going to cause yourself a lot more trouble down the line. I think it's sort of it's it's a lot about listening to that and then having to you know own up when you have made those mistakes or where you can see something that might become a problem later. Yeah, exactly. Those diff- and I think making the difficult decisions and the difficult calls because some of those things are quite scary to do that you think, oh god, that will be a that will be so hard, but better to do it straight away and lance the boil than to let it fester, I suppose, and then have to deal with it when it's much worse further down the line. And that takes uh, experience, I think, to, to, to know that and also to have the confidence to use your voice and say what you think and, and not, not be shy. And I suppose hand, handle it without, I mean, you know, we, we mentioned earlier about sort of showing fear on the face. I suppose it's also when you have to have those difficult conversations, it's trying not to you know, become over, over, um, overwhelmed with your own feelings about the situation. Like if someone's, you know, not working in a way you want, you've got to kind of bottle that down and, and try and be polite and, and reasonable and professional when you have to sometimes deliver quite bad news. Yeah. And that's really hard. I mean, that gets no easier as it goes on, you know, those, those terrifying calls that you have to make and, you know, and also hurting people's feelings. If, if somebody maybe I'm sure they think they're doing a good job, and maybe they're not, and to have that difficult conversation, and either try and be um, constructive in your criticism, or you know, ultimately having to get rid of someone. Which, to be honest, I've done very few times in in my career, but it's yeah, it's a very emotional industry. So, mm. yeah. yeah. Would well, you think there's a difference between TV producing? Because for the next sort of few years, certainly at the BBC, you produce some amazing TV. You know, the long firm thing called Love, Dirty War. Um, but then you, you, like you said, you wanted to do film. Um, and around that time, you started to move towards film. Do you, did you find a difference then between producing TV and producing film? And I suppose, do you now? I think there's a massive difference, actually. I think television, and because I've always, I love film, and I still am producing some films. But as a, as a creative producer, television is a more exciting medium because I think you have more, you have more impact because you know, generally, you know, with Temple we do eight parts, and you have three directors, so you hold the creative overview in a way that, in a film, is is the director has it. And I think the other thing I prefer, I mean, like when I produce before I go to sleep, we probably watch the cut about forty times, and by the end, you, you just can't tell anymore whether it's good or not. It's so and true, it's, yeah. There's little changes. You're like, mm, don't it's know. really, really hard. Whereas in TV, we've got, you know, maximum four weeks, absolute maximum to edit an episode. So you have to think much faster and make your decisions quicker. And I find that more intellectually stimulating than watching a film 40 times. I mean, ideally, you have a balance and you do all things because a film exercises very different muscles. Because so often that's it's just just different storytelling. Um, And you're holding on a big television show, you're holding so many more story strands in your head. So it's much more like a complicated jigsaw in a way that a film is a more straightforward, often narrative. You know, you've got 90 minutes and it's you've got a beginning, middle and an end. Whereas TV, you're just trying to get to different hooks and hopefully create another season. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's so wonderful. It's fascinating. Go on, Dom. And in, in terms of the sort of for people that are sort of maybe going into television that are from a, a film background, like what, what are the differences like maybe in, in post-production in terms of how you approach the edit? And, you know, if there's if you realize you don't have what you need and you need to go and do pickups, is it kind of the same kind of process? Like what's, what's your kind of experience in the, the post schedule inside of that? Yeah, I think I mean, it all de- I've never worked on 
giant movies, um, but certainly big movies, obviously, they, they have loads of money to do pickups or, or re, they don't call them reshoots, new, whatever, they, new material, whatever. Yes, we, yeah, less, we should never call them reshoots. I know, yes. <laughs> um, but I think on, on, on TV, because you generally have such a long schedule, what is helpful, and you're, you're cutting it at the same time as, as, as shooting, is that particularly for the first two blocks on, on an eight-part TV show, say, you, you're already in the edit and you can see quite quickly where the gaps might be where the story gaps might be, which is no fault of the director or even writer, because you don't really know until you pull it, put it together what you might or might not need. And then on, on, on most shows that I've done, you do go back and shoot new scenes that help tell the story. Um, it's always toughest for the third block because they don't get any opportunity to do that because you wrap and then they don't, it's too late for them. So <laughs> Absolutely. Fascinating because um, when we had Ben Caron on, who uh, was a direct, one of the directors of The Crown and exec producer, it, it, one of the latest seasons, and again, that's because there's so much money and so much stuff going into it. I think the first episode, it took a year from when he first started shooting it to when he finished. They actually sort of said, yes, we sign off on this edit. A year. He said he was going insane. He said, I can't watch this anymore. I do it. And I used because obviously he's taking it like a feature film, but he was like, I'm, I'm done. And I found that really fascinating. But I really love the idea that you're saying, no four weeks this is what we have and i think that that makes you like when we're on set me and dom directing stuff we're like we have to make decisions right there and then it's this one or this one the lights coming through there so we're going to shoot from this way we're going to do a close-up what we're going to do and and i love the idea of just four weeks in the edit you know you kind of go this is what we've got this is it let's move do you do occasional pickups though um on to something like tempo is there occasional little bits that you'll just go back and do yeah, definitely, definitely. We, we, yeah, on 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 both series, we've gone back and done at least four days of of new material. Um, occasionally reshooting a scene, but generally new material that that we've written to make mm -hmm. the show better. Yes. I think it's so important that filmmakers do realise that that is something vital to put in your budget from the off, certainly indie filmmakers. And people just don't. And then suddenly they go, oh, we need to pick up. We've got no money and we can't afford anything. And I imagine it's already in the budgets on the TV uh, series as well. I imagine it's the same thing. You've put in a line already to say, well, if we've got to do four days, here's the budget for it. Is that what happens? Yeah, I think when you, when you uh, build a schedule, you always think maybe I've got two, three days at the end. That sort of spare days because obviously it's so expensive each filming day but that you've got there in case you run over or in case you've got to do pickups i think that's that's really important yeah and i think sometimes it's not even about if you're if you're unprepared like you know sometimes people look at pickups and they think okay well it's it's something we didn't get sometimes you can have a script that's in an amazing place and it can be through the collaboration of the editing process and the things that sort of happen organically on set that you'd never foreseen that might create a new opportunity and that's you know where the pickup is so it's it's good to allow yourself that freedom certainly i think whether you're doing an indie even if you're giving yourself an extra day or two um, yeah i think it's a brilliant thing and there's, there's no shame in a pickup you know i think it's it's not like it's not that like you didn't get it so therefore you've done something wrong it's it's only when you start to put it together that you realize oh my god it'd be brilliant to have that shot this that you know so yeah i think i think they're invaluable if you can afford them i mean generally back when i was producing at the bbc uh, we could we couldn't afford pickups you know you might be able to squeeze something extra into a, an already full day but that there was no extra money at the end oh i see so yeah it was what you've shot was that was it this, yeah man. and you just had to make it work and i remember we were doing the long fun we were in south africa and it was raining and we'd gone to africa for this beautiful sun and it was literally torrential rain <laughs> and we we just had to cut the scenes we, we couldn't come back we couldn't we just 
had to do it is when they come off a plane and actually they came off with umbrellas but we, we just had to take out huge chunks of material because there was no opportunity to go back because wow. of the budget that we were um, that's funny because from the bbc then i mean not maybe directly but you were also uh, head of um drama at channel four and then you made the fantastic red riding series which was sort of i suppose when i first started getting into directing and sort of you know from my other career as an actor and suddenly went oh this is incredible. And I wanted to ask you about finding stories. And even now, and you know, and the story of finding Temple is wonderful. And we'll, we'll sort of come back to that. Um, but in terms of something like Red Riding on, and all the other amazing shows that you've made, where do ideas come from? Where do stories come from? Do, do a lot of things get submitted and you pick and choose? Or do you find ideas as well? Talk us through finding stories. Um, and I think that was when I was in the head of drama job at, at Channel 4, that was slight, I, I found some things myself, but a lot of things were brought by production companies. So uh, Red Riding was with um, Andrew Eaton at Revolution Films that optioned the David Peace novels. And they're very brutal books. I don't know if you've ever read them, but uh, Tony Grizzoni did a completely incredible job of adapting them. Originally, there were four films actually, but we, we couldn't afford them, so it ended up being a trilogy. Um, but that, but that project in, in particular, like the, the, my boss at Channel 4 at the time read the scripts and was, you know, how can you, we possibly make this? It's about, you know, swan's wings being stitched into children's backs. This is completely gruesome. No one's going to watch this. And it took about eight months to persuade them that this was a brilliant, and it's because of the quality of the scripts. Tony's writing was so brilliant. They were just some of the best scripts I've ever read. And uh, we ended up, having, as I say, there were four scripts originally. We had to cut one out and we did this amazing table read and, you know, to try and persuade the powers that be that this was a show worth making. And in the end, we had, I think it was only two million pounds of film. They were incredibly low budget. So we were very, we had to make very difficult creative decisions um, on, on that in terms of, you know, not being able to afford many extras and shooting against a wall and things like that. But it just, it, it came out so brilliantly because we had such great directors and such great producing team. Totally and, did, yeah. and it did really well. Everyone was so surprised. Mm. I mean, loads of people watched it. Yeah, um, award-winning. Anand Tucker directed one. You've got uh, Julian Gerald who's been on the podcast, edited, uh, directed one. Um, yeah, and, and uh, James Marsh as well. You know, it's like the, the three brilliant directors and they were just all so different and wonderful. Um, so sometimes stories come so, to so, you. Yeah, and, so that was a different, yeah, to go yeah. back to your original question, that was that came in via a production company because that's how you work in, in a job like that. Um, but I mean, at, at the moment, as a, as a producer, you know, you, you stories can come from anywhere. So you're reading book manuscripts before they're published. You're reading articles. You're listening to podcasts. You're meeting writers who might have an original idea. You're just getting a little something from a magazine. It could be anything. I mean, that's the endless nature of being a producer is that your work is never done. Anything could be a TV show or a film. So and I, and I and I suppose your I suppose your script reading days when you were kind of starting out and you you read so many scripts and you've read so many since then that now it's quite um I suppose it's quite quick for you to sort of tell whether a script is you know good or bad uh you know the, the 10 pages rule always seems to be quite effective in terms of at least telling the quality of the writing if if nothing else I suppose um, so. I mean, I would say that we, we hardly ever get anything that's already a script. I suppose we develop pretty oh, okay. much everything from the ground up, you know, so so whether it's a book, like we recently optioned Hamlet, which has gone on to be in yes, Hamlet, I've inc read that. incredible yeah. book. Um, yes, incredible. Which, yeah. um, which uh, I read in manuscript form um, straight away, actually, because it was emailed to me by by her agent. And I'm a huge Maggie O'Farrell fan. 
so so read it and and we optioned it way before it was published oh, which is wonderful great and a very exciting book to have um, and i think we're, we're going to do that as a movie that's um, amazing so if people don't know it's kind of the early life of, of sort of william shakespeare but it's yeah his kids called what sort of hamlet it's it's fascinating it's a really wonderful but really interesting so i can't wait to i hope that i can't wait to see that i hope that yeah happens, hopefully like. that's yeah that's that's very exciting we're very excited about about that yeah. project but i've got another project for example, called called Mary and George, which is about um, James the First's third favourite, who was also his his lover, and that that came from me just looking at Time Out and looking in the LGBT section and, and seeing something about James the First and thinking, oh my god, I didn't know James the First was gay, and then I did a whole load of research um, into it, and there's, there's a lot of debate amongst historians, but you know he's wrote lots of love letters to this this man um, who who became uh, a very powerful. Uh, Duke and well, then we found this brilliant non-fiction book called The King's Assassin that, that we optioned and then we, we jumped off from there and created a show called Mary and George I see um, and is Hamlet a film and is Mary and George a TV series yes is that, oh, yes. yes okay yes. so I love that you still you know you're doing both you're parallel constantly thinking well that could be a film that could be a TV sometimes how do you decide how do you know what could make a good TV or what could make a good film? Because like, we get this all the time, me and Dom. Projects come to us or I have writers speak, like, well, this this idea, and you go, that's amazing. And like last year, everyone just said, oh, it should be TV, make it TV. Everyone goes, <laughs> yeah. yeah, that sounds great, but, you know. We won't work for TV, but let's make it TV. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so you're doing these pitch decks, one for TV and one for film. I think, I, think you, I think they're really distinct ideas for TV and film. I think TV, you've got to have loads of story. I mean, it depends what it is. Is it a single film for TV? Is it a three-parter? But if it's a return, turning series you've got to have real story legs as tv eats up story you know when we're storylining a show you always end up pulling the story forward all the time so the episodes are as packed as possible and i think only certain ideas or certain precincts that you might go to could generate that much story um, and something like hamlet for example because it's very much got a beginning middle and an end that book for me it could have it could have been a three-part tv show maybe but it's probably better as a 90-minute film um, so, so I, I, yeah. So, so what's your sort of process in terms of you know once you've got a manuscript or, or you know some some idea that you think's great, do you immediately start to put together treatments and and look for writers? Do you start with a you know a single or a couple of writers and then sort of build it into a writer's room? Uh, what's the kind of process there in terms of moving things forward? And think, how do you find yeah. those writers as well? I think every project is different and so there's there's no rules I mean sometimes if we have a germ of an idea as producers and with my team we might pull together a really great pitch document with pictures and and a sense of the story that we would then go out to agents and and find a writer that way around I mean we, we tend to have writers we tend to only do writers rooms once the show is is green lit um, uh, so I think then we read loads and loads of sample scripts. We go out to agents and say, who's available for this period? And we get a million suggestions. And then you read through all the scripts. It's, it's just a long, laborious process and work out who's got the right tone for the show that you're doing. And then you interview them maybe once, maybe twice. And then and then you have to get approval from from the broadcaster and then they can join the room. I imagine that's the same with the directors as well. I mean, you, you sort of go, well, who could be right for this? There's people you know as well that you've worked with before. A perfect example is Christopher Smith uh, for, you know, the new series of Temple he'd worked with in the past. But I imagine there's also you're looking for new people all the time. So the same thing there. Not only have you got to look through a load of other screenwriters' work before you 
find your team you must do the same with the directors as well yeah and that also takes a long time because you sort of want to do all your research because you don't want to miss anybody so I think that also is, is a long process of and it always comes through agents and it never comes unsubmitted where you know you go out to the, the major agents and say right I'm looking for a director for these dates who have you got and then you'll be bombarded with suggestions and then it's and episodes and links and things like that and then it's a, it's about watching it all and working out who has the right vibe for the show that you're doing. Mm. And then you'd meet them, I suppose, and then you'd see what that vibe is like as well. So not only their work vibe, but their personal vibe as well, because you've got to be working on for a long time. And, and how they connect with others, I suppose, is very important. Yeah, yeah. So people come in the room and, you know, some directors will come with a, a real pitch, you know, with a visual pitch on their computer or, or, or printed out or something. And I always find that quite impressive that people have put the work in rather than people just coming for a chat. Um, but yeah, you, you tend to... You don't want to meet too many people, but you might meet eight or nine people unless you've got a really clear idea who you're going for, because a lot of directors, A-list directors or are going to be offer only. So you'll just go out to that one person. Um, but I think when you're finding subsequent like second and third block directors, that's just it's just a long process of, of meeting people and, you know, meeting people more than once, I think, to try and make sure that the fit is right. And then I always take up quite as many references as I can, because how someone is in an hour of meeting is maybe not how they are on set. Yeah, it, it's always it's always, it's always such a useful thing to do. Like, and it doesn't have to be like an official reference, but you can just you can so easily find on IMDb who people have worked with and what films. And you know, if you've been in the industry for a while, you, you'll generally know someone on the set, and you can just ask them, you know, what their experience was. And uh, you know, usually you'll get a sort of a relatively you know, yep, they were okay or stay away. <laughs> I, mean, I, I get calls all the time from people to say what they're like, you know, someone's art department, makeup, costume, whatever it is, I'll constantly get, you know, the call. What were they like? And I think that's for editor. I think it's really important. And I do that to other people as well. I look through their work and go, okay, I know that director. I might know that director. Let me see if I can get contact and I call up. And I imagine it's exactly the same for you. What about when, when you mentioned there about people come in the room and then you have the second meeting. What What is good advice for a writer slash director and or either when they come in to meet someone like yourself at a, a meeting that first meeting do you want writers to come with ideas do you want you know do you want it to be natural what what kind of works um I think coming with ideas is always good I mean it's different with, with a writer I suppose is it, is it a general meeting and then it's just going you know a chat about do you get on do you connect as people because I think a writer has to trust you you know they have to because it, it's to give their work to you to be made it has to be a relation you have to get on and you have to just have a spark between you and also a laugh and and you know imagine that you could have a long relationship because it certainly would be a long relationship if you actually develop something and then got it made um and I, but I think when directors come in on on jobs and I think this with all with all HODs it's it's good if you know people come in with their portfolios or they come in with a with a, a pitch the people that tend to get jobs are the people that put quite a lot of work in before they come in. And if you're a director and you're you're coming in with a pitch, because I mean I'm you know I'm aware this is something that can be a bit challenging in in the television world, especially is you know you're a director who's worked in film, you've got very strong sort of you know ideas for you know how how um you know a story could be told in in your eyes. How how do you you know is it a difficult thing when people come in to to see the balance between original idea and sort of fitting in with the show yeah and it, yeah that's about learning how to read the room I suppose and listening because you need to come it also it totally depends on what kind of project is it you know if you're coming in for a two-part standalone drama 
it's going to be like a movie. It's going to be your vision. But if you're coming in to be a second and third block director on a show that's already established, you can come in with sort of your own ideas, but really you've got to fit into the house style. So in that case, you've got to say intelligent things about the script that's been sent to you and have some visual ideas, but you can't change the look of a show because you don't want to come in and be too critical. Um, but you've got to, I remember on the, the, I won't say which department it was, but someone came in on the set for the second season of Temple and in a very elegant way said what they thought was wrong with their department's work in the first <laughs> season. And I actually really agreed. Wow. And she did okay. it, in, she did it in such a, you know, a, I hope you don't mind me saying this, but way. And it was quite bold of her, but but she was right. And I ended, I did give her the job because I thought she was absolutely spot on with, with what That's she had seen. So Yes. So sometimes it is about having that confidence to say, look, yeah, I, I need to say this because this is what I feel I can do better and help yeah, you and like, make yeah, it better. Yeah, exactly. Like I loved, okay. I loved the first season. It was great, but I think you could do this better. And if I was being really nitpicky, I would say X, Y, and Z wasn't perfect. And it was something that, it was in this department's work that only I really would have noticed. If you were just watching it once, you wouldn't have noticed. But it was just little tiny things that she had very perceptively picked up on. And, and, I, and I suppose that's yeah. that's really good in, a, in another way is because what that demonstrates on top of that is when you're in the middle of the shoot and they've got a problem, uh, you know, or you've got a problem and you're having a discussion about it, that, you know, the tone and, and the way that they have brought this issue to you You've, you've kind of seen that they've dealt with it in a you know in a reasonable manner and that, I guess that's you know when you're in the battle together that's a really useful um, you know thing to know about them yeah yeah absolutely because it's all you know it, it's such teamwork making a film or, or a TV show that it, it's I think as a producer it's about trying to assemble the best team who will all get on with each other obviously people will inevitably have you know dramas and, and th- but you just I don't know I always just hire people who I think are really nice that I want to work with I think that's so important. You just want to, you just want to, it's so hard what we do that you, you just want to work with nice people. Mm-hmm. When you're in the trenches and it's tough, you don't want someone who's bawling and shouting and you, or whatever it is, or being mean or horrible. You actually, you want people that you can get on with and go, okay, let's tackle this together and make it make sense. Um, yeah, just, just to, cause I'd love to talk about Temple and I'd love to talk about obviously the new projects you've got, even if you could, whatever you can say about those, but just to touch on the feature films that I love, you went for a period of making just, just absolutely amazing films like Japan in a day, obviously Britain in a day, welcome to the punch, Springsteen and I, uh, Italy in a day before I go to sleep, get Sam Tech. just, all brilliant really fun different genre films that are just so good but we could talk about those for ages and go on but let's i just really wanted to dive into temple because i I love this series obviously i i know mark from football anyway and and it's been really interesting to watch him play this character and see the growth of temple and and he sort of you know he mentioned it right early on as well and um, the growth of it and i just want to talk to you about how you you know took this Norwegian show or you saw it early on and said I want to take that and I think it's really inspiring for a lot of producers out there to go how do you win something like that you know this really great show and persuade someone to go put it in my hands and we're gonna sort of make your show but make it in the UK so it'd be really nice to hear your 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 side of, of, of Temple and you know why you thought this would make a great British show and it is I love it so yeah it'd be really cool to hear that. Oh, thanks. Well, um, I basically knew someone that worked for Walter Presents um, and, you know, the Channel 4 thing that Walter does international TV shows. And um, I just I got sent the links to Valkyrian and I remember sitting down with with Mark and we binge watched it over a couple of nights. 
and really enjoyed it. And I just wondered who had the rights and I found out that they were, they were available. So literally I booked a plane to Oslo and I persuaded Mark to come with me. And we, asked it, we, we flew out and I said, look, well, well it'll, you know, the meeting will be an hour or two. We can, can be like a bit of a mini break. We can just go and look around and everything. And actually we went to the Norwegian guys, producers offices and we ended up sitting with them for about six hours literally talking wow. about the show, about what it could be, and they're just great guys. And then we went mm. back to our little hotel for an hour to change and then took them out for dinner. So we spent a huge amount of time with them. And then we flew back the next day. We literally just went for 24 hours. And then I immediately sent them a, a really good offer to, to, to option the show because actually they they was out in, I remember when I spoke to WME about it, they said, all oh, the, the rights have gone for that because a, a very big, management agency in LA were out looking for a showrunner but interestingly they hadn't signed a deal and they hadn't paid the Norwegian producers any money they were just trying to set it up before they committed and so it meant we could just slip in there and I offered them a, a, a really good deal a really fair deal and they would see a lot more money and they have seen a lot more money than if they'd set it up in the States and I think they really responded to us as Europeans, but actually they, they were a little bit suspicious of the Americans. And I think the fact that we were so enthusiastic about their show and really loved it, and they could really imagine it reset in London. We just really got on with them. They were just great people. And so and the fact you've flown out there as well, and you've, you've just spent all this time, you've bonded together. Like, you know, I think those things really do make a difference. And also I'd obviously had a, someone to star in it. And then I, I called Anne, Anne Mensah, who at the time was at Sky, who I'd known for years because she was at the BBC. And I said, look, I've watched this brilliant show. Someone else in America is after it. Can you just watch the first episode tonight and, and, you know, let me know what you think. And she watched it. She's like, yeah, I agree. It's great. I'll guarantee you a script commission. And, and so I didn't have a writer at that point. So to go back to the Norwegians with a really great, generous financial offer and a star and a guaranteed script commission, that trumped anything that the Americans had. So it was a very exciting week when all of this took place and they decided to give us the rights. And then very quickly, we got the show up and running. It's sort of within a year we were shooting it, which is a crazy short time frame for a TV show. Um, and it was because, you know, Anne was so supportive uh, at, at, at Sky and then her successes as well, obviously. But yeah, we got we got it going really fast. And Marco Rowe wrote the scripts who I'd worked with before. I made a film with him called Boy A um, mm -hmm. with, with yeah. Andrew Garfield. That was I know. Yeah. Great film. Yeah. Great. great brilliant film. film that John Crowley directed. And I've been wanting to work with Mark ever since. In fact, even when I was at Channel 4, I'd given him a blank script commission. I was so keen to work oh, with really? him. Really? And wow. I've tried him lots of times over the years. And then I just tried him at the right moment he happened to be available he he likes the concept and the show and you know off we went it was great that's amazing and that's someone you were talking about to star in it is mark strong obviously um that must be i suppose obviously you persuaded him to come across but you'd also said look would you i want you to star in this how how does that kind of conversation happen does it kind of like yeah you are going to be in this you know if i'm done with <laughs> If you know what's good for you. Yeah, I mean. <laughs> I think because he, he's been, been away so much and so much shoots abroad that he really wanted to do a show in London. So we were we were just at the very beginning of starting to look for something that we could make together and make in London because we've worked a lot together. Um, you know, from the, mm, from yeah. the long, you know, we, we met on a job, Fields of Gold, a million, over 20 years ago. Yeah, and then right. we worked on the long firm together. Mm -hmm. We did a Low Winter Sun when I was at Channel 4, yeah. Endgame. Uh, welcome, welcome to, to the, the punch, punch before yeah. I go to sleep. So we've worked mm -hmm. together a lot. And then this was his first exec producing uh, gig on, on Temple, which I think he's really enjoyed being a bit, a bit more involved. 
Mm, I remember the podcast, episode 19, he came on uh, this filmmaker's podcast to chat with us about it. And he was just saying then, oh, I'm actually starting, you know, I'm exec king now and, 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 you know, making things. And it was really, you could see the excitement in him of going, yeah, I really want to do this and see what happens. And, you know, since I spoke to him about it and he he really enjoys it, he really loves that side of it. You know, it's like ownership of something, you know, that you've used there at the first meeting with you. I think that's really wonderful. Yeah, I think it's great. And I think the more the more you act and the older you get, you think, oh, God, I want to have some kind of control over something that I'm doing rather than just waiting for the phone to ring. So I think even in the, in the second season, he's been even more involved and obviously across all of the casting, but he's been watching all the cuts in, in post with me and, and, and giving us notes and being being really helpful. And I think that's really I don't think he'd want to do it all the time because some jobs you just want to go in and out and not have to think it takes so long to make a TV show. But yeah, he's really loved doing it, which is great. Yeah, I've seen. We've got my good pal Julian Kostov, who's in uh, in the new season as well. He's uh, he's super excited. He's over the moon um, that he got this job. You know, uh, playing he's Max so great and... in episode four. It's a great episode, and he's. I think he'll be really pleased. He's really brilliant in it. Oh, that's so good. That's so good. And Christopher Smith directed. Uh, oh, he directed bits of that episode, I think, and or bits of Julian's section, I think. But uh, yeah, that I, I can't wait to see the new season. I really can't. And the first one was so interesting it was so and original sh- as well mm, I mean, yeah i was, was going to say like i mean just the the idea that you've got this sort of hidden world on under where you where you live i think is so in- incredibly fascinating especially in london where you sort of go about your days and everything's so mundane creating that sense of magic it is, is <laughs> you so, might <laughs> <laughs> no but, but i mean you know when you're just jumping on the tube and you're just you know going totally. into offices and stuff like that you know to, to create this kind of hidden world is you know tapping into something beyond a drama um and it's it's really sort of interesting on on that front when you got hold of the rights like you know what was the process in terms of trying to you know put your own spin on it and um you know making it into the show that it is now well i think we worked obviously very closely with with marco rowe who never wanted to do a straightforward translation of the norwegian show he was always going to make it his own so we created lots of new characters that sort of mercy and keith storyline that that obviously wasn't wasn't in the original and I think we were just we 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 wanted to make a show that felt a bit more like an American cable show you know it has all these tonal variations because I think in the UK that is rarer than it is in American drama you know we tend to make a crime thriller or a comedy or less of that kind of genre mashup so I think we really wanted to make a show that sometimes is incredibly dramatic and sad and sometimes makes you laugh out loud and just to go on this bit little bit of a mad journey um, and I, I, I really love, I really love stuff that kind of throws in those, uh, <clears throat> those American feels, but into a into a British setting. I mean, like you know, Luther's a good example. It's kind of a slightly la- larger than life, um, you know, detective show. And and I, I think you've done it with Temple certainly, and it it, it adds an element of something fresh um, and interesting um, to sort of separate separate it from from the other sort of UK dramas. Yes, well, that's what it tries. So, yeah, season two, we've gone, we've, yeah, we've got even more plot and more exciting things happen. We go out and about in the world more uh, than in series one. Yeah, so it's, uh, it's, I'm really pleased with it. I think it's, it's going to be great. It's going to be really great. And interestingly, uh, I found out you actually shot underground so in the disused stations which i loved because don was talking about there about london and when you just go about your daily lives or whatever but actually there's so many hidden tunnels and hidden secret 
you know, passageways because wasn't the London Underground owned by loads of different people at one point? So they started building these tunnels and then didn't have the money to finish them. And didn't you film down in one of these these areas as well? Yeah, we shot down in the, in the Aldwych where there are various unfinished tunnels. And it's exactly that. Entrepreneurs used to own different lines. And the Aldwych, they obviously thought it was going to be a much bigger station than it was. So they built three enormous lift shafts, but they only ever used one. So there are these giant empty lift shafts that run right from the ground, you know, really far down all the way up to the surface. And we actually based the um, the, the operation room uh, in, in, you know, the big round room that's, mm, that's yeah. in the set. That is yeah, sort of co- a copy of uh, the lift shaft from the Aldwych. And there are loads of tunnels down there. There's one platform where they film a lot of period dramas down there, which, which looks quite 1930s. But there are other weird tunnels that are no, don't have the tiles on them. They're just unfinished it's tunnels. Tunnels. Yeah. Very dark, scary, and frightening. Down there. Yeah, it's yeah. great. It's a great location. Yes. It's like Christopher Smith's um, movie Creep, wasn't it? Didn't he make Creep? Wasn't yeah, that which his? Yeah, he shot exactly yes. down in those tunnels. There you go. How amazing. Yeah, but you built sets as well, though, right? So you could, you didn't shoot everything down there. You built your own sets as well. Yeah, we built this enormous set. And David Roger, mm-hmm. who interestingly was the designer on the very first show that I was talking about earlier, The Sins with Pete Postlethwaite, he designed that, and then uh, and then came and designed our huge set for Temple. So everything, the operating theatre, that giant main room, Beth's bedroom, the whole thing was just a gigantic build, and it's, it was so brilliant, down to little bits of moss growing in between the cracks in the tunnels it was an exceptional set and then for series two we've built a huge extra water tunnel as well which is um, also very cool we had a brilliant uh, young designer called Lucien Surin who came in and, and added on a whole extra feature to our giant set which is just a delight yeah that's great would you know when when's it coming out when's temple season two going to be upon us autumn I think. autumn we'll autumn. go with autumn yeah. autumn okay right and season three, like I say, you're just in the, the early stages of throwing stuff around to see what happens. Yeah, yeah, which, yes. is, yeah, which is great fun. Yeah, no, it absolutely must be. Um, wow, wow, wow. This has been so good. Honestly, thank you so much. There's so much other stuff we could Im- unpack with you and unpick because your career is incredible. It, honestly, you're a real inspiration for so many uh, producers and you should be immensely proud of, of where you're at right now because I think it's super and wonderful. I really do. It's really nice. Um, so well done. Um, so yes, and, and thank you so much for spending time with us. This has been Yeah, it's been brilliant. really fascinating and re- really unique as well. Like it's it's been a very interesting original uh take on on writing and developing shows that i think a lot of people find really good oh, i hope yeah. so i mean there's so many more things you could say but yeah uh, but yeah I, w- I would say that i've always been in my career that i've been for so often the only woman in the room i mean that is massively changing now um but i think it's it has been very male dominated our industry but i think the good news is that that it's a great time now to be a female writer or, or a diverse writer because everyone is now giving people opportunities that they didn't used to get. You know, it used to be very dominated by um, white men. Sorry, white men <laughs> on the podcast. But, but, um... but it's true. I know, well, you know, it's true. We're white middle-aged men and it's, it's, it's a shame, but it's true. And it's kind of like, well, look, you know, it's, that's how it was. And it must have been really difficult. How, how, did you, how did you actually fight back sometimes? I know you said you had to just be, I'm here and no, I'm not. The, the runner I'm not making you a tea how, what was how was that to sort of fight that sometimes was it difficult or were you just did you just embrace it and I, I think it was uh, I mean you just you just get on with it don't you um and uh you know sexism that you might encounter in a way I 
I don't know. I guess maybe I wasn't even aware. It just was how it was. You know, it's only since since Me Too and everything has happened, you think, oh, hold on a minute. That actually wasn't okay that I was slightly perved on like that. Or particularly when I was a script editor, there was one person who was very uh, forward in in a way (laughs) that was kind of quite a funny anecdote at the time. But looking back now, sort of 20 years on, you think, hold on a minute. I was a very young woman. I was in a room with a much older man who had all the power. And that wasn't really a suitable thing that he did. Um, but, but you know, you, you just get through it. And I think every woman in the industry would have stories like that, rap party stories. I mean, rap parties are the worst or inappropriate things happening. But now that, that, you know, that is people are being called out. So I think that behavior is, is changing. And I think that the main, like on honor, I know you mentioned that briefly, we actually have more women on the crew than men, which is the first set that I've ever worked on where there were more women. Um, I, think I love that. We had a female yeah. uh, gaffer, which is really unusual. And she brought with her a very diverse team, uh, women. And uh, and yeah, it was great. So so that was, so I think things are really, really changing. So I think it's really optimistic. And I think it's a great time to be a woman in the industry um, mm-hmm. as, as yeah, talent totally as well. Because there's, there's always been a lot of female producers, but I think we've always been enabling the men for, for a lot mm-hmm. of our career. And now I think there's a lot more women, which is great. And there's certainly there's certainly certain sort of crew positions that are sort of thought of as one gender or the other. And I think there's definitely movement sort of going in a positive area where, you know, anyone can be anything. And I, and I think that's great. Yeah, it's great. There's so many women now on the camera on camera teams. Yeah, which exactly. Has always yeah. been very male. Um, so so that's 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 brilliant. I think there's loads to be positive about and there's so much being made. I mean, there's been a slight interruption, obviously, because of COVID. But I think there's there's so many places to sell shows now and there's more and more everyone. You know, the one thing we've come out of this year is how much we all, how much television we've all watched. Mm-hmm. I have. Yeah, well, so hundreds and hundreds yeah. of hours. <laughs> yeah, yes, yeah, um, it's one good thing. So I hope um, there's, there's space for everybody. Do you know what I mean? White men, yes. all different types of people. I think hopefully everybody's voices can be heard, which is which is a really good thing. Yep, I totally agree. I think the Me Too movement has been brilliant. For it has stopped. So anything you see like that now, we can all jump on it and won't feel that awkwardness of going, what, what are you doing? I'm allowed to do this type of thing. Now we can all just go, no, you can't do that. That's not right. Um, and but I think you, you literally couldn't positive. say that before. No, you couldn't. Me too. You no. couldn't sit in yeah. a room and say, hold on a minute. I don't think that character could, I don't think we should do, you just, everyone would have looked at you like a freak. Mm-hmm. You, you, you they would have. Yeah. You couldn't really say things like that. And now everybody has to listen when you make those comments. Which is, really have to. Well, intimacy really coordinators to. everywhere now, and that's so vital. Like stunt coordinators, we're always around. They're the same thing, and I can't believe it's taken this long for us to to find them. Back when I was acting, I, I was often, you know, doing sex scenes or whatever, and it was so awkward and so it was worse for the woman. But for me, still, you're lying there naked, no one's giving a shit. They're sort of going, "Oh, we've got the scene now," and you're like, "Hello," and it's horrible. There was no protection at all. And it's great now that that is the first thing. It's the most important. Like, this is protected. This is what we're doing. You lot get out of it. And you're not allowed because you'd be literally called out. And I think that's wonderful. And it's great. Yeah, really good. Um, Listen, I could, we could keep you all day. And I'd actually love to keep talking to you. But maybe when uh, Honor comes out, we can get you back no, on. Honor's already come out. You know, it already came out on ITV. Wait. Yeah. So um, Amazing. Oh, OK. It's the second season, isn't it? No, no. It's... There's only one season of it because it was what? just a little. It was only two parts. With Keely right, Hawes. Okay. So, Keely so, Hawes, that's the one. Right. Yes, yes, yes. So it was on ITV and it did incredibly well. It got 6.7 million viewers. Um, yes. Yeah. It was it was great for, for a show that I think people didn't anticipate would 
get that many viewers because it's about quite a tough, well, incredibly tough subject matter. But yeah, it did really well. And it's actually just been on in, in America as well on BritBox US. Okay, so, that's on yeah. that's on my list. <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah, totally. That's a, that's a, my total mistake. I was like, no, no, this hasn't come out yet, so I'm not gonna, you know, like no, we can no, talk about yeah, it. No, so it's, it's, been it's on, done. So it's done. It's Amazing. Done. Yeah. Great. Okay. Well, I'll put links to that in the show. Can you can still catch it on? Um, it's probably on the ITV player. ITV player. Yeah. I okay. Think. I haven't looked right. recently, but it it probably is. Um, right. Yeah. And we'll yeah, look forward to really uh, Temple season two in the autumn. Yes, yes, be great. Great. Um, is there anything else it, it, for, for me? And just finally, a um, little bit of advice. I know you've given so much, but is there anything you could put into a nutshell to, to sort of wrap up, you know, inspired producers right now? If there was anything that would be a delight. For, for producers, yes, want to be producers. Yeah, I think, I don't know, I think you have to be pretty determined and, yeah, don't give up and don't take no for an answer. I would say I was uh, when um, I wanted to, to get Mark in to play the lead in the, in the long firm. This was obviously a long time ago. And uh, my bosses weren't sure that he was the right person. So he came in and auditioned three times and it became slightly embarrassing because he was my boyfriend. <laughs> and why am I pushing forward my boyfriend? And I literally <laughs> would make these big speeches like, believe me, I wouldn't be doing this unless I was absolutely 100% certain he was the right person for the part. I wouldn't put myself on the line. That would be so embarrassing. Mm, I would yes. never do that. And I just didn't give up. I just kept going. It was a really interesting lesson is if you just don't give up and you keep saying, no, with all respect, I really think he is the right person for the part. That fight in with the passion. End, fight with passion. And, and, you know, and obviously be incredibly nice about it. But I didn't give up. And he, he got the part and he was brilliant. And, and, you know, to her credit, my boss at the time was like, you know, I'm glad you pushed me because because you were right. And that was quite an early lesson in 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 not giving up. Yeah. 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 Amazing amazing thoughts. Amazing, amazing. Um are you on the socials at all? Are you on the Twitter or the Instagram for people to follow you and the say Twitter. thank you for this? The Twitter, the, <laughs> the Instagram. Twitter. Are you on there? Charles sounds about Facebook? seventy years years old there. <laughs> are you on the Twitter, young man? Um No, we've got here a pictures uh You got here a pictures yeah, on there. Yeah. yeah. Okay, great. So here are pictures. I'll do a link to that in the show notes. I've really enjoyed this. I can't yeah, wait it's been for fantastic. To get this one. It's been really good. Um, thank you honestly this has been amazing advice uh, really enjoyed it a lot um, great well look um, yeah unless there's anything else you can think of no right I mean now. honestly literally I don't, really talk, <laughs> I don't really talk about this kind of stuff very often because you, who, do I, don't, who do I talk to about it there's so much that you could say that, that you, you know all different stories that you have and, and ways you could try and help people I guess the older you get the more you think I could try and help people because when you're younger you're just trying to be in the room but as you get older you think how can you help other people be in the room yeah exactly yeah exactly i think we've just got so used to doing this with the sort of podcast that we feel like we've <laughs> we sort of give advice you know it's all the time and that's why it's so lovely to hear it from a, a fresh perspective the sort of the tv side is really nice and the way your thought process works with writers and where you find projects yeah it's really really fascinating um, this, uh, this has been delight. Thank you. Um, yeah, thanks very much. You're welcome. You can find me at Charles Alderson, Dom Lenoir. Where can people find you? Uh, at Dom Lenoir or director Dom Lenoir. 
and you can follow the podcast at Filmmakers Pod. And remember, you can go out there and make your film or TV show. And if you're lucky enough to rise up and do well, just as Liza has done, it is your duty to send the elevator back down. Uh, join us next week for more amazing uh, interviews just like this one. Uh, take care, everyone. Liza, thank you again for your amazing, amazing advice. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. Bye, everyone. See you next week. Take care. Thank you.